Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we will be discussing part two of Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, and I'm joined again by my brilliant reading partner, Faiza Parvez. Hi, Faiza. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much for being here again today. It was such a pleasure to have this discussion about the first part of Beauvoir's book last time, and I'm super excited to join um, forces and discuss the second part today. So thanks for being here. Yeah, no, I had a really great time in our discussion, and I'm excited about part two as well. Me too. <laughs> Me too. So actually, I wanted to start by saying that one thing that I was reflecting on after our last conversation was our different perspectives that we bring to this text. So I hope it's okay that I share this. I was just thinking about how right before we started recording the previous episode, you had texted me, can we start a few minutes late? My baby is sleeping on me. <laughs> <laughs> it was the sweetest thing to remember um, that feeling of a baby just sleeping on your chest. And it's just so magical. And it was also an interesting moment, right? Because we were literally like going to discuss womanhood and motherhood and Beauvoir's <laughs> thoughts on it. And so I just felt like this really interesting moment where the lines were blurred be mm -hmm. between what we were reading kind of in an academic scholarly way and what we were literally living mm -hmm. in our real lives. Mm -hmm. And I thought of that quote from 1970s feminism that says the personal is political. Mm. The stuff we're talking about in Beauvoir's book is important, not just because she's a brilliant theorist, but because it describes our actual real lives. Mm. And so I wanted to talk just a little bit about our real lives and kind of our our lived experiences just as two different women who are friends through mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. But I was just thinking about you and how impressed I've been with you having your first baby and how you've described how your baby just kind of joins you on your Zoom calls and your if you have a work meeting and as you're working, we're Faiza and I are, we're both working on our thesis right now for our master's degree and he just joins you wherever you are. And when I had my first baby and I have four children, right. when I had my first baby, I quit my job. I completely abandoned all career pursuits and I ended my participation in academia and in the workforce and participation in the economy. And I basically just stepped out of the adult world mm -hmm. completely with the exception of just family life. And I was honestly really happy to do it at the time because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I hadn't even entertained any other option. And I just think it's useful to remember what a huge range of beliefs and practices and life choices there are between different communities and different families in the way we view men's and women's roles, even women living in the same time period and in the same place. And I was thinking just really quickly, I wanted to share um, also my, so my sister and I had this really interesting conversation like two weeks ago where of course my sister and I grew up in the same house, in the same religion in the with the same schools, the same family, all of our, nurture as children was pretty much the same and our nature with the same parents, the same genes. Um, we went to the same college. She's married with three kids, but she's a labor and delivery nurse mm -hmm. and she's worked all throughout while she's had her three wow. children. Mm -hmm. And she was saying that she feels guilty not working outside the home mm -hmm. when, whenever she thinks like, ah, it's too much. And she's always trying to balance 
being really present and she's an, an amazing mother and she wants to be mm-hmm. there for her kids. And so she's always kind of trying to figure out the right balance for her. And when she has stepped back and, and quit her job at times, she feels guilty not working. So I was, we were trying to figure out, I said, how is it that we had the same exact upbringing, mm. but you feel guilty not working. And I somehow absorbed this indoctrination to not work outside the home mm. in almost any circumstances. I would never have considered it. I would have felt super guilty if I had worked mm-hmm. and we're sisters. Mm-hmm. And we finally figured out, I said, oh, you know what? I bet it was, even though we were at Brigham Young University at the same time, she was a nursing major, right? And that's a major that prepares students for a profession. And even at super conservative BYU, there were female professors in the nursing program, mm-hmm. many female students who were preparing to work. And she got job training and she had other women in her cohort entering the workforce afterwards. She had older female role models who talked about work-life balance. And um, I was an English major. And so we just sat in rooms and read books and talked (laughs) talked about books, which is funny that I say that out loud because that's literally what I've continued to do. (laughs) (laughs) And I've joined you in that quest. (laughs) (laughs) But you're doing, you're doing both, which is so cool. Well, you're doing all you're doing so many different things and i i've just been reflecting on like again just different women's life choices and i guess i bring it up because i feel like it's really important to have these conversations with each other just mm. to ask questions and not make assumptions about just because it's 2020 we both live in palo alto and that we that we will bring to a certain text or to a certain issue the same assumptions or beliefs, right? Even my own sister and I have discovered mm-hmm. what different experiences we had in college that informed the way we made our choices as adults. So with all of that said, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about you, Faiza. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way you were raised, what mm-hmm. expectations did you have for yourself as a woman and what examples were set for you? And did you follow those examples or did you deviate from them? Kind of however you want to answer that question. Yeah, no, those are really deep insights, Amy. And I am, appreciate you sharing them with me. And it's just wonderful how you had that, you know, lovely conversation with your sister. And, and it's all ties to what we'll be discussing today with Beauvoir, because as we'll see, and when we'll discuss the text, she also navigates through all of a woman's experience all of her life. And really like in, you know, you will be talking about childhood and then married woman, the mother, the lesbian, the, you know, woman's um, social life and, and situation. She really looks at every aspect of a woman's life and tries to understand why are women in the situation that they are in, right? And and sharing our personal stories helps us also understand, you know, and connect with Beauvoir. Um, so first, I want to say, like, you know, for me, after giving birth, just the idea that women have more than one baby just baffled me. I thought those women are super women. Like literally they need to be given some kind of Nobel prize for, or something, you know, some kind of big award. And, and I just commend you for having not one, but four and going through it like four times. I just can't even imagine like, you know, like I remember after our baby was born, I was like, how many how many days or years till he you know goes to college because I can't wait I can't do this it's too much work and we never talk about this right we never Mm. we say that uh, oh I'm just at home with the kids 
home at the kids is not like you're living a luxury life. You're actually working and maybe working much more harder um, than, you know, somebody in the office. So I think it's uh, underappreciated. It's not considered work. And we only see it as work when we actually get hire someone to do it for us. And only then we realize like, oh, I'm paying um, you know, for care, child care, I'm paying $5,000 a month or even more, right? And it's expensive. Care is expensive. And this is something in our society that I feel we need to change, mm. especially as we are, you know, our parents, baby boomer generation is getting older, we'll need care um, as our children, you know, as we're all working uh, or, or we want to have a life where women want to work, the man wants to work, you know, dual income families, and we want to have children and we want to have a healthy, you know, flourishing family life. Uh, it will not be sustainable if we don't really, you know, set in care as an important element of our life and not just focus on work or, you know, just the office work. And um, so, yeah, so that's something we can discuss later on. Um, but yeah, for myself, just to, you know, when you ask me these questions, I've been thinking like how to answer, how deep to go in. And like, you know, it's just the like a person's life story. There's so many aspects. And I had to really reflect on, on you know, how I was brought up and uh, why did I make certain choices or which choices were made for me without even me acknowledging that they were made. Like, you know, like all those things that I had to relive through my past. So this is a very, uh, you know, brilliant question that you asked and made me, um, you know, really become conscious of myself and uh, and understand myself or what I thought, you know, um, of myself, even when I was growing up and the choices that were made available. So one thing I would say, yes, we both live in Palo Alto. So maybe our life, however we lived, you know, you in Utah and me in Pakistan, uh, somehow has merged here in Palo Alto in, in Stanford. Mm -hmm. But but my experience um, is a bit different because I'm a first generation immigrant. And um, so coming to the US, I came here for college. And um, so work is sort of, there's no question uh, that, you know, you don't work or work because you have to work in order to get uh, permanent residence, uh, residency in the U.S. So that was mm. like a element. Um, so there was no like, you know, after college, there was no question like, OK, should I work? Should I not work? Or um, so, yeah, so that was, you know, essential for me in order to um get legal status to to work. And it's actually a long process. People think you know, immigrants come and then they just take over. It actually took a long time. I mean, I only became a citizen last year. So it was like 17 years being in the US. So you have to go I through. I didn't know that. Oh my gosh, congratulations. Yeah, and I was actually wow. full term pregnant at my ceremony. And I would the whole time I was like, where's the restroom? Is there a restroom? <gasps> <laughs> it was the ceremony was in Campbell it was the hottest day and I was just like oh my god please baby don't come now I'm in my <laughs> oh my <laughs> goodness it was like the funniest experience but anyway so so yeah so um so yeah so that only happened last year until I mean I think till I got my green card I felt really safe you know that I could go and pursue other things like you know mm -hmm. start that's when I left my job and first you know was embarking on startup idea and and then you know decided to do the MLA and um so yeah so that only happened after I got the green card till I had the I didn't even travel anywhere <laughs> I was like I'm just living right here just working like you know like crazy and uh couldn't take any gap years or whatever because you know um I I didn't go to Pakistan I my parent I mean luckily my parents were coming over and then they settled here so so that was uh, really great because 
going back to Pakistan, traveling between when you are not a permanent resident, you have to get stamped and you have to go to the U.S. embassy in Pakistan. It's like really, really terrible. Um, so, you know, so so I was just like put in one place. And um, so, yeah, so that, you know, so that was essential. I guess work in that case was essential. But then the question begs, you know, why did I, why was I sent to the U.S.? Is that something an opportunity that all Pakistani girls get or, you know, and I think in, in that sense, I would have to say, give credit, especially to my mother who had this vision <laughs> and, um, you know, and wanted all the opportunities to be given to her children that, you know, maybe she didn't get to avail herself. So I feel like there was a generational shift in thinking after the baby boomers um, mm. that you know, women should work or or there's no like everybody works you know there's no 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 if you're a girl you stay at home and have kids I think there was some change that happened in Pakistan that um, and also because there were more women in the workforce so then it it was sort of seen um, as not something too unusual so you were already seeing like in Pakistan women working and in my own family, right? My mother's generation, women, even though my mother didn't, she worked for a little bit. But when I, I was born, she, I was her last child. She stayed at home. And so there was like, you know, there are women in my own family who sort of started seeing like Generation X is, is now working. Women are more my, my cousins and all they go to, all went to um, you know medical school or law schools and were like, you know, participating in the workforce. But but the interesting thing is that none of them were like sent abroad without being married, you know. So so that was mm-hmm. a thing. Um, and you generally in Pakistan, I mean, okay, there are uh, girls who are sent to the U.S. to study, but then they're from very very wealthy families, and then they go back to Pakistan and join their father's industry industry or whatever, right? So it's never the case that you are sent um, to study and uh, and then you expect it to to work to get your green green card or whatever which generally boys are you know sent for that or they come after uh, undergraduate they come more for graduate degrees and some women also come for graduate degrees so I thought that was was I you know as I was thinking about it yeah it was a very radical step a step that you know my mother took and uh, and my brother who who was already in the U.S. my both my brothers are a lot older than me and my eldest brother who helped me and you know paid for my college and helped oh, me wow. set up everything so it was a lot of like family sacrifice and and sort of like a vision that you know we were following like we're all gonna like my older brother helped my younger brother also I mean younger he's they're both like only a year apart but uh, both went my older brother went to engineering school then came for grad school to Stanford and my second brother went to med school in Pakistan and then came here for his residency uh, in the U.S. so you know so I, so it was like my older brother helping everybody come to the U.S. and I was the the third one, and then you know, then my parents came and my brother sponsored them. So I think it's like this immigrant journey uh, mm-hmm. to to settle in the United States, and so so we were part of that wave. And uh, growing up, yeah, I mean, when I was thinking about it, you know, your question whether, and I was thinking about it in the terms of how women had started perceiving themselves more as you know, having the same desires as men, like Abuvar talks about, right? They're equivalent in every aspect, except for it's the society that tells them, no, 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 you are a girl, you cannot do this. And I was mm-hmm. thinking like, you know, growing up, I never thought that I was any different. Um, maybe I was like unusual. I don't know. I was a very <laughs> unusual kid in school. But uh, but I never really thought that, 
you know, like opportunities will not be available to me because I'm a girl. Um, maybe it also was because I had two older brothers. I was very tomboyish. I didn't really know, like, you know, the separate, like how women are separate. I, I just maybe wasn't like too aware. And my mother was also really did not imbue any f- what are considered feminine qualities like in me. Like I was so so maybe in that sense, things were a bit different. Um, I'm not sure, <laughs> but um, but it's funny because in our school, it was really encouraged. Like this is middle school and high school. I went to a military school, even though my family's not from the military, but, um, you know, civilians could join in in that school. So I was one of the civilians. And um, so interestingly, like there was a lot of push for girls to, to go to medical school, even though I grew up in a very conservative, uh, one of the more conservative cities in Pakistan. interestingly the medical school there had more women at some point there were more girls enrolled than than boys so there was a big controversy about it like oh no the girls are taking over what to do you know boys cannot get in because girls were apparently doing really well in in high school and outshining the boys and then in large numbers getting into the medical school so then there was this whole thing about no we want to now have a separate medical school just for girls where they could go and then we can keep a few girls in this co-ed one and the parents actually revolted they were like no 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 we want our girls to go to the co-ed one we don't want them to go to which i thought was interesting even for a very conservative town and i think it's also because in pakistan you know in all conservative societies marriage is a big thing and Mm -hmm. getting into medical school sort of Maybe parents also feel that, oh, maybe she'll find someone there, also a oh. doctor. And and if she becomes a doctor, she'll look good to other potential boys who want to marry her. Like, our daughter is a doctor, you know, very smart. Look, you know, so it's kind of interesting that that was playing into it. But at the same time, you now had a lot of women doctors who were then, you know, obviously trying to get into the workforce as well. So that was, you know, an interesting change that started happening. Not so many women in engineering school um, very few in, in Peshawar, but um, a lot of women in my year, because I was in, in, in Pakistan in high school, you actually select, in high school, you select whether you want to study pre-medicine or pre-engineering. And you basically you take biology or you take calculus. So that's the only difference. And I was in the pre-engineering group and most of the girls were mostly aiming towards going towards undergraduate and business like business schools. And, and I and I thought that was interesting. And I see that here as well. So a lot of women were coming into banking and finance and that sort of industry. Um, so yeah, so I feel like there was already a push, you know, uh, for women to join in the workforce, mainly because um, in Pakistan, if you want to stay in Pakistan, salaries are not so great. And if a dual in, with dual income, you can have a better lifestyle. And, and then you live in a combined family system if you get married. So you may you, you do get help with your you know, in-laws or your other family members. Or now there were also our child care facilities in Pakistan. So things are shifting in that were shifting in that sense. So I sort of saw, you know, women already participating in the workforce. And um, and yeah, and, and it, it felt like bygone days when, you know, you graduate from college and you get a proposal. Uh, a marriage proposal and then you have to ask your father-in-law please uncle can I work after my wedding and the uncle says no oh. you have to stay at home and do blah 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 I mean that just seemed like a very outdated like you know the new okay. yeah, the new change was that you no know, the women were making their own decisions they were trying and the parents were also helping them getting into universities and um, 
and yeah and then of course you know you get married but uh but you know you can also part you have the option to participate in the workforce or or come abroad a lot of people you know the brain drain because you don't have many opportunities available a lot of people were trying to to come abroad and then if you come abroad as a doctor or an engineer or whatever i mean postgraduate studies you either and you see that a lot of you know in, from India and China as well, a lot more graduate students coming uh, from from those regions. They get a degree here, then you know you you have to work because in order to get legal status. So yeah, so yeah, so in in, in those terms, you know, work was then an essential element for um, you know either having a better life or if you're you know moving to a new country, then then establishing yourself there. So. The one thing that, you know, you, that I was thinking about and, um, you know, the difference that you and are, that we share with what you said, like, you know, once you had your first child, you actually had to step out of the workforce. And um, so one thing is that I, you know, got married late, like that was a big, you know, push. So my family, I feel like they gave me a lot of independence to, to, you know, make certain choices like, okay, I was brought here, I was sent here for, for college on my own, was working, you know, on my own. But then there's expectations like, okay, by mid twenties, you know, you better listen to us and we will help introduce you to boys and you start thinking about marriage. And I was sort of, that's when I <laughs> was like really pushing it because, um, I was pushing it because I knew that it would be, well, A, you know, I wanted to make sure I knew myself first before I step, stepped into, you know, such a, such a commitment. And, and I wanted to sort of, sort of live life a little bit and experience uh, what I like, what I don't like, you know, just, just myself and, and try out everything that I could, um, you know, I like discovered the outdoors I, I you know like everything that I just didn't have access to in Pakistan or probably hadn't because I was so um you know rigid in, in college like I really like when I was working and had my own paycheck I wanted to sort of you know travel I mean I wasn't traveling outside but just uh, in the U.S. and do do all these things which my you know obviously my family was fine with that but they were also thinking that I should be um be more serious about finding a husband and I wasn't <laughs> I mm -hmm. was more um you know focused at work also and navigating that like what do I I mean I really wanted to understand is this really what I want to do or is there something else that I'm interested in that I never got to explore right um, because I was just so focused on getting a job and becoming an engineer is there something else that I've completely missed out a part of my personality that I haven't you know really developed and so I was sort of really focused on that and that's when I started writing and started writing short stories and and started getting getting them published I didn't tell my family I was doing all that my mom had no mm -hmm. idea why I was up always late or you know wow. I had this joke like I'm a software engineer by day and and like a classic <laughs> writer by night like <laughs> I love myself and and all my coworkers would laugh at me like you know the the, the secret life that I leave lead with <laughs> evening and and um and yeah, and so, so you know, so I was like discovering myself, and then and Sharif was the, uh, you know, we were we both worked together, so we knew each other for a while before we got involved, and um, and then yeah, when when we got married, you know, even then we didn't want to immediately have children. We wanted to do things together and spend time together, and um, and and yeah, so it was you know, so it was like difficult decisions. 
but to make in terms of you know expectations where okay you get married in your mid-20s and then you immediately have children then you live the life of you know the mom or and and sort of always I felt like I had to push on that you know or or like Sharif and I had a goal yes we'll have our first child um you know after uh, uh during like you know, just before our five-year anniversary we'll have we'll celebrate our fifth-year wedding anniversary with our first child so literally our baby came two weeks before our wedding anniversary so I love it <laughs> so it eventually happened like that so it was funny but um but yeah so those are the things that you know so that sort of allowed me um you know having the baby so late allowed me to um you know for 10 years be involved in the workforce and not have to worry about oh you know family and children and because I don't think you know women can do both I mean I know people say oh you can do both I don't if you want to be a mom and it's really hard work you cannot be at work especially how what demands are placed on uh, workers in the corporate environment I don't think it's doable so that needs to change if they really want to include families so yeah so then so, so that allowed me, like I said, you know, to, to delay childbirth and, be, you know, still be at work. And, uh, and yeah, now that I, I did have a baby, I, um, you know, I'm at a place in my life where, um, you know, things are, I mean, of course, COVID had made actually things easier for me because everything went remote because otherwise going to Stanford was terrible. And mm-hmm. uh, when he was three months old, I was going to class and Sharif would call me in the middle and say, he's crying. He can't stop. Run back. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it was really, really tough. So I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine how women do it. So, uh, so yeah, with COVID at least, you know, and things being remote, it helped me to be at home with, with the baby and, you know, be involved with everything that, and, and things are easily done remote. I don't know why there's push to be there in person, um, so one thing I want to add, you know, we say a lot about, oh, it's in technology where women, technology companies where women are pushed to work and they're not given opportunities to be with their family and stuff. But I also see that in the humanities. And I think it's really interesting. You would think that they would have more of a empathy towards, right, the women's situation, mm-hmm. but they, I don't think there it exists. Um, for example, last year when I was a full term, I got into one of our, you know, conferences that we apply for the for our program. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. told them, like, look, you have to travel for that. Like, I'm full term. Can I do it remotely? Like, I mean, it's just a paper that I have to read. Could I do it remotely? And now, you know, everybody, they gave me this whole thing. They've never thought of this. They've never had this problem. And no, wow. no, no, humanities, we believe in person to person, blah, blah, blah. You know, all this, the thing that they tell you, like, we believe in person to person interaction. We don't believe in this remote stuff. I, I was like, okay, that's odd because, you know, giving a remote talk is equivalent to like being in person because you now technology is there and it's so much easier to do it. And they were like, no, 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 we don't do this. This year, because of COVID, they had the whole conference remote. I'm like, right. oh, why did you then go right. now? Because it's essential now, everybody. And similar to our classes, right? I mean, they're all in the evening. I mean, this is like my baby's bedtime. How mm-hmm. could I, I don't think I could have gone to, cl- luckily I was done with coursework. I don't think I could have gone to a single class if I had, I would have to probably drop out because mm-hmm. maybe it's bedtime, uh, he sleeps with mama, how could I go? And, you know, so I think, um, I think like the humanities also need to understand how to incorporate women uh, with children, people with families. And and I feel like these are 
ways to sort of get rid of the women, the, the mothers, you know, from the system. Like, you know, we talk about mm-hmm. patriarchal system and we think of patriarchy generally as a man who comes and bosses around the house and shouts. But it's not that. It's just these simple little, you know, what looks as harmless systems in place, but they're really there to to keep women out, to women who are mothers. Or mm-hmm. I would say men who are fathers and want to be involved with their children's life. It really pushes them away from the the, the family life. And I think mm-hmm. uh, and I think in those terms, uh, maybe COVID has shown us that things can be done remotely. So maybe more women could mm-hmm. uh, and people with families could participate. So I think in those terms, uh, I think I've taken a lot of time describing. No, it's fantastic. <laughs> but, but I think, but, but I think. Um, um, you know, because your question made me think about all these things in my life and in general, you know, our situation. Um, I think those are those were like some of the experiences that I had that sort of sort of made me realize the patriarchal system that is in place. And maybe in some ways that I pushed it or or am still trying to push it or even trying to understand what could be done better. Um, either through reading this text with you or, or, you know, through other ways and how we can make our society be more family friendly and incorporate, Mm -hmm. you know, like we're talking about last time with you was, you know, how can we create a more flourishing life? And it can't be just about work or making money. It has to involve our families, our children. It has to involve care and it has to involve rethinking what work means like you can't say, oh, you know, I opted out of work. No, Amy, you were working. You were working harder than mm. anybody raising those four kids. And and why is it that we don't consider that as work? Or why is it that we, you know, it's unpaid? Or why is it that it's gender divided? Like you'll talk about uh, right. in the next sections. So let's dive into to- right. <laughs> oh well, Faiza, that was just fascinating and. I mean, I learned so much about you and really appreciated everything you said. And then also you were just like bringing up so many interesting topics. We could just spend now the hour going (laughs) on all of those topics you brought up. I have to say two things in response that I thought were so interesting when you talked about the the last thing that the last topic that you were talking about about creating a more family friendly work environment and how when you went to the presented the idea to the conference and saying I'm full term pregnant I can't fly to present my paper could you work with me it reminded me of what we talked about in our last episode with Beauvoir um, just the very foundational kind of framework where the male is placed as the one and the female is the other. She's secondary. And I just thought that just that anecdote that you shared demonstrates that we do live in a patriarchy because mm-hmm. if the world were a matriarchy, which I'm not advocating, I believe in egalitarianism, egalitarianism but if it were a matriarchy of a woman and having a baby would be central. It would be built into the system. And so for them to approach you like, you're what? We've never heard this before. You're having a baby? Like as if every human being on this planet was not brought into the world by a woman giving birth, right? It's treated as this strange 
phenomenon when it is central to our experience, not, I mean, not even only as humans, but as living creatures on this planet. And then it's seen as like this weird exception. I mean, that, that alone, that anecdote I thought was so striking through the lens of Beauvoir, just seeing Mm -hmm. like, wow, do we live in a patriarchy that, that, that experience that you had would even be seen as yeah, something that they had to make a really strange exception for yeah. because a woman was giving birth. <laughs> so, right. And the odd part, and I think Bouvard talks about it, this came from a woman who said, oh, we've never had, we, yeah. we don't make this exception. Yep. And I was like, you're a woman, don't you? You know, so so I thought yeah. that was also interesting why, when she talks about it, how women sort of give in to this world system yeah. and, uh, and don't understand that, you know, they're actually are um you know doing what the men do so right perpetuating perpetuating that system yeah exactly and i'll just say one more thing and then we will dive into this book but um i the first thing that you said there were so many things that you said that i was like what tell me more about that but we'll talk about pakistan and we'll talk about all those things we'll have to go to lunch sometime um but but the first thing that you said when you were talking about and i had just shared how oh i i wasn't I I don't know if I said the words, I wasn't allowed to work, but that Mm -hmm. is definitely kind of how I view it in retrospect, that I didn't allow myself Mm -hmm. to even think about working. And then what you shared afterwards was um, that you had come here as a first-generation citizen, and so that wouldn't have been an option for you to not work. And I was really shown a... (sighs) Just my I, the the privilege of having the option to not work, mm-hmm. and I have um, had conversation. I had one conversation with a friend recently too, where we were I, we're both again we're both Mormon, similar to what I shared with my sister, where we were both brought up in the same church. And I was saying, well, you know how women don't work, Mormon women don't work, and and we were not understanding each other. We just kept talking past each other mm-hmm. and. And finally, she said, are you telling me that like really no one, no women that you knew when you were growing up worked mm. in, in your church, in the church community? And I was like, I, I mean, I can't really think of any, maybe they worked part time, but no one had careers. And, and she said, wow, you grew up in a rich area then because mm-hmm. every woman I knew, mm-hmm. Mormon or not Mormon, had to work. They couldn't have paid for food and rent and their kids' piano lessons if they hadn't both worked. And I felt like a jerk. I I mean, I really had not factored in my class privilege of mm-hmm. my family of origin. And I felt a, similarly humbled as you started to talk too about the privilege that it is to not mm-hmm. have to work in order to, mm-hmm. to, you know, to maintain the household. And I just wanted to acknowledge that, mm-hmm. um, so thank you for sharing. I, I learned so much from everything you, you said. Yeah. So, okay, well, here we go. We are going to structure um, this conversation by taking four of the chapters. There are many chapters in the book. We're just going to discuss four in the second half. I'm going to take the chapters that are titled Childhood and the Married Woman. And then Faiza, you'll have the chapters the mother and um, woman's situation and character. So I'll start with childhood. And there are three points that I took from this chapter that I want to share. First is a really critical one. Um, It's Beauvoir's definition of sex and gender. 
And the second one that I'll share is a child's gradu- or gradual awareness of who is in charge in the world. And then the third one I'll share is a girl's relationship with her body. So the first one is probably one of Beauvoir's most famous quotes. If you just look her up, um, you'll see the quote, one is not born, but rather becomes woman. So Beauvoir introduces this notion that sex is different from gender. Um, Sex is physiological. It's based on male or female genitalia. And with very rare exception, human beings, sex is binary, right? So at birth, they're labeled, it's a boy or it's a girl. It's a binary thing. Your sex is determined by your body parts. She says gender is different. And this is the way sex and gender is conceptualized now, but I wasn't actually aware of this until we learned it in in our grad school program. Actually, I'd never heard of this before, but um, Beauvoir points out that gender is not physiological, but how a person presents themselves in the world. So a person's gender is acquired gradually throughout one's life based on the culture culture norms about like what clothes and hairstyles and mannerisms signal male or female traits across a spectrum. So you have super, super male, really, really masculine on one side, and then really, really female and feminine on the other side, and you have androgyny in the middle. And of course, androgyny is from the Greek andro for man and gyny or gyny for woman. So right in between, in the middle, a a neutral, a gender neutral. And each person just As they grow up, they receive messages about what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a girl. And then there's tomboys. And then there's, you know, boys who feel like they want to paint their nails or like you. Feminine boys. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, sure. There's it's a whole continuum Mm -hmm. of traits. And each culture has their own different one where in some countries, boys wear skirts and that's the masculine thing. And in another one, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. wear a skirt because that's very feminine. So it depends on your culture, but every culture has one a spectrum of gender. And this is what Beauvoir refers to as a person becoming a woman throughout her lifetime. So when we think back to what you taught us last time, Faiza, about existentialism, we can see that this way of seeing sex and gender is really existentialist in nature as opposed to essentialist. Mm -hmm. So in the book, she points out that the Greeks thought that human beings had an essence that made them them. And our best life can be lived by figuring out what our unique purpose is, what is our essence, and then we align our choices and our lives with that purpose. And my faith tradition of Mormonism believes in, in that ideology completely. We talk a lot about gender essentialism. We're taught that our eternal souls have a sex and a gender and that they existed before our souls inhabited our bodies. It's eternal. It will inhabit our Um, Our our souls go on forever and we are gendered spirits. Other religions certainly don't have that same conception, but but Mormonism does, interestingly. So that's pretty incompatible with (laughs) the existentialist notion that Beauvoir is asserting that she's, as an existentialist, she says there isn't really a pre-existent self. Existentialism says that we create meaning in our lives through our actions, So we create whatever meaning we choose and we create our essence. Um, And Beauvoir carries this idea into the gender question with this statement that says, I, or that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman throughout their life and creates that meaning in their life. Would you say that's 
um, an accurate assessment, Faiza? Yeah, no, that's very well put together. I think uh, you accurately said um, that, you know, Bouvard says that both boys and girls are born equal. They have the same traits. And what what is it that makes the girl child different? And she says she socialized basically to mm-hmm. be different. Like man, he learns his power. And 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 then this passivity or um, you know being mediocre or eminent is sort of pushed onto the girl child from the very beginning. And that's when she starts embodying those characteristics. Mm-hmm. And there's a point where she starts talking about, you know, the families in this in this um, chapter, she talks about the family experience of the of the girl, and she starts seeing the father as the authority figure, the one who yeah. goes out. He's the sovereign, and uh, you know what does he do outside? His time spent at home, and based on that, she sort of uh, sees that he is transcendence. He is God, and and so um, and boys are spoken about with more seriousness and more esteem. So then that's when she realizes that men are the masters of the world and not women. And and this is like the great re- revelation to her. So she's using a lot of like Freudian analogy, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, the discovery of the penis and, and all of that that happens and and talks about mythology and, and how the father, uh, the kind of role that the father plays in her life. And eventually, and, and then she uses like historical and literally culture to sort of signify the exaltation of man that, you know, is there. And she, when you read all these books and you look at the movies or whatever, you know, culture that you consume, you see man everywhere. And that's what you start seeing that he's more powerful. And it's it's really interesting. It's only now that we've started to understand or, or became cognizant of uh the, the the lack of women as superheroes or supermodels and what and you know it's only now that like even Disney right the princess shift that happened and I think uh, I heard it somewhere that when Sheryl Sandberg became a uh, got on the board of Disney it's that's when she said oh how come there are no superheroes or princesses who are super and that's when they first made Brave which was an okay success mm-hmm. and then you yeah. know the Frozen became like this big thing. And uh, so now it's more about the female-centered characters and push for that. So then, you know, maybe that's what it's needed, a woman in authority figure who can pinpoint and say, hey, boys, you know, let's mm-hmm. tell a different story. Let's tell it from this perspective. Why are we only perpetuating, again, per- the word perpetuating the same narrative over and over when you are showing these girls, oh, just wait for Prince Charming and that's all you need to do. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, so that change is happening just now. Even it's funny, like... Um, Last year, my husband and I were just watching reruns of Frasier. And, and, you know, there is this one character who is a woman in the workplace and she's always uh, harassed for her sexuality. Like the whole, I mean, it's supposed to be funny. And I just, post me too, did not find that funny at all. And I kept complaining, like, why this joke? It doesn't make any sense. How come they don't make fun of the man and his sexuality? So I think even like, you know, post me too, we've become, we've realized like, oh, harassing women at work is not funny. It's not okay. And and back then we would watch the same shows and, and it was okay. So it's only when something mm-hmm. comes in our consciousness that we become aware, like, oh yeah, that was injustice that was being done and we just never saw it that way we just thought that's how things are if you're a woman at work you're going to get harassed by the men and you just laugh it off or you know and and that's what tv was showing you so i think those cultural changes only come about when women in uh, rise to power and then pinpoint like no this is unacceptable and uh, you need to change and that's when change happens so i think that's what you're sort of trying to say that um, those messages are sent from early on 
you know, in childhood, that that's when the girl starts molding herself into that role that that patriarchy wants her to to affirm. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with with everything you said. Um, And you actually really articulated well the second point, which is perfect, where um, the second point from that chapter that I wanted to highlight, which you just talked about really eloquently is a child's gradual realization that it's the men are in charge, the men that are in charge. So just like you said, babies are treated pretty much the same way, kissed and cuddled and hugged Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and they, and their psychological world revolves around the mother. But then gradually they start Mm -hmm. to realize like, oh, it's actually not the women that are in charge. (laughs) Um, And, and I, I, I mean, I could talk about my personal experience of realizing that and going, oh, and I'm a woman, so I will never, you know, be able to have this or that role and what that felt like for me. But we'll talk about my, the awakening of my feminist consciousness (laughs) a different day. Perfect. (laughs) Okay. So the third point from this chapter is that girls experience a transition from their bodies being a subject to being an object. So Beauvoir says, this body that the little girl identified with self becomes an object that others look at and see. And Beauvoir cites a lot of different women's stories, like Faisal, like you just said, um, like Freud um, uses lots of case studies mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to demonstrate you know, anecdotes of people who shared their personal experiences. Beauvoir does the same thing. And this is one. So this isn't Beauvoir. This is an anonymous woman who contributed to contributed this study to, to Beauvoir's work. So she says, at 13, I walked around bare-legged in a short dress. A man sniggering made a comment about my fat calves. <laughs> the next day, my mother made me wear stockings and lengthen my skirt. But I will never forget the shock I suddenly felt in seeing myself seen. Mm. Um, Beauvoir then comments, um, she says, quote, the little girl feels that her body is escaping her, that it is no longer the clear expression of her individuality. It becomes foreign to her. And at the same moment, she is grasped by others as a thing. On the streets, eyes follow her. Her body is subject to comments. She would like to become invisible she is afraid. And I just had a conversation with a a dear friend. So my youngest child is 12. And this is a dear friend whose daughter has, you know, started going through puberty. And she said she's starting to hunch her shoulders. She's starting to kind of try to whip. She's wearing baggy clothes and trying to kind of make herself small. And I said, oh my gosh, I just read that section (laughs) in Beauvoir. And I remember feeling it myself. And we we agreed that that's something that I think is different for girls. It's a different feeling, even now, even though this was written in the 1940s and some of the anecdotes that Beauvoir shares aren't as relevant anymore. This one to me does feel extremely relatable. Um, I remember certain moments where I thought like, oh, I'm being, I'm being seen. Mm -hmm. I am being perceived. And I started seeing myself um, through the filter of how other people were perceiving me. And we could have a whole long conversation on selfies and social media and how girls present themselves for others to hit the like button for their pictures. Um, mm. But we don't have time for that. But it, it this is a really important point, I think. And, and one point I want to make is how important it is for girls to participate in sports and outdoor activities and practice mindfulness and have their own interests and hobbies to keep their psyches 
centered in their mm-hmm. own bodies and not constantly worried about how they're being perceived and, and instead mm-hmm. think about what their bodies can do. So those were the three main points I wanted to talk about from the childhood chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and then I have the next one too. So the next chapter is the married woman. Mm. And so this Again, I guess like I just said, we can look at this book as a time capsule. It was written in the 1940s in France, and some of the things are specific to that time and place. Um, But a lot of these parts feel really current to me, and she starts the chapter with a discussion of the imbalance that we take for granted when a man and a woman get married. And I, I also should mention that like all the texts we've read so far, the assumption is that partnerships are heterosexual, even though Beauvoir had homosexual relationships in her life, all of the, I mean, it, for the most part in her book, when she talks about marriage or she talks about partnership, it's it's an assumption of heterosexual relationships. And this podcast will talk about um, LGBTQ plus points of view as we get later into the 20th century when people start writing about that more. So um, I just want to give that little caveat here that when she talks about the married woman, it's um, a heterosexual marriage that she's talking about. But anyway, um, she t- she talks about things that we just take for granted in, in heterosexual marriage. And I was remembering that when Eric and I got engaged, we both, we kind of talked about this. We had mixed feelings about how he, we're, I mean, if it's not obvious already, I come from a pretty traditional family. And so Eric went and asked my dad for permission to marry me. And in some ways that felt really sweet. And in other ways it felt uncomfortable. And I really thought about taking his last name and no one would know me by my own last name. And then he gave me a ring. And so I was wearing, like, I felt like And I loved my ring. It was just a lot of mixed feelings, but I was quite aware he was too. And we talked about it like, this is weird. It feels like he has a claim on me or like that he was owning me. And I was signaling it with this ring that I was wearing around, like I'm claimed and I didn't give him a ring. He walked around still free, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't take my name. Mm -hmm. He didn't, I mean, I didn't have to ask anybody to like transfer ownership to me for, um, for him. And so, um, it was, it was a really imbalanced process. Um, and even like the tradition of the father walking the daughter down the aisle to give Mm -hmm. his daughter to the man that's waiting on the other side. It's just, it's a transfer of ownership. So if you look at the historical timeline that we've been following along, you know, this podcast through the different episodes, it's kind of disturbing, to reflect on where these practices come from, from men literally owning women. Um, and so Beauvoir points out a lot of those, those things that we take for granted in the marriage construct. But I want to share two more. And the first one is the wife as a facilitator of other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to read um, Beauvoir's words. She says, Today, man marries to anchor himself in imminence, but not to confine himself in it. He wants a home, but also to remain free to escape from it. Mm. Children, even more than husbands, want to go beyond the home's limits. Their life is elsewhere, in front of them. The wife tries to constitute a universe of permanence and continuity. Husband and children want to go beyond the situation she creates, and which for them is only a given. 
The matron is dependent on her husband and children. She justifies her existence through them. Regardless of how well she is respected, she is subjugated, secondary, parasitic. The heavy curse weighing on her is that the very meaning of her existence is not in her hands. This is the reason the successes and failures of her conjugal life have much more importance for her than for the man. He is a citizen, a producer, before being a husband. She is above all, and often exclusively, a wife. Mm. So I I mean, with the exception, I suppose, of um, kind of dramatic words like parasitic, which were off-putting to me personally, I actually really, really related to this um, comment. On, or this observation, I guess, on a personal level. I, not because my husband ever made me feel that way, but we both just kind of bought into this system that neither of us created and that w- we weren't aware of. We married at 22. We were pregnant seven months later. Wow. I was, yeah, I was <laughs> pregnant at my own college graduation. I was married and pregnant. As a young mother, I, I mean, I said these words, I felt very validated actually reading Beauvoir's words because I had, I said all the time, like bawling my eyes out. Mm. <laughs> like I feel, I remember saying to Eric, I feel like a ghost. I feel like I only exist to facilitate other people's lives mm. because Eric was a parent just like I was, but he also had work mm. and I didn't. And the kids also had school and they were able to, I would drive them to all of their activities but what did I love? I loved school and I had not gotten a master's degree. I had given up my own school. What did I love? I loved teaching school and I had given that up. And I I had a really hard time, especially when all the kids were little. And I um, even I remember asking Eric, like, seriously, if this is what girls grow up to do, then why do we even bother educating girls? Because if we can't, if I can't even use my brain and use my education, then what was all of that time spent toward of thinking like, I can do anything and I'm so interested in this topic and I'm going to spend hours and hours every day practicing the piano. For what? If I don't even get to use any of that in my adult life. Um, And I even had, I was, I had this conversation with a friend recently, a, a man, a really, really smart, really, really good man. And he told me, that he saw that self-sacrifice as um, as like a beautiful self-sacrifice that women make and that women should make. And he called it, the, the thing he said was, he said, it's a noble self-annihilation. <laughs> and I, I told my sister that afterwards and she said, oh, I, th- what I call it is the recipe for mental illness. That's, <laughs> that's so terrible. And I do think it is. And I, um, for me, it, it really was. So anyway, um, I really, really related to Beauvoir's description of that, that scenario where the woman spends all day working, making the home a safe place for everybody else to come back to so that they can, it's like a nest that the other birds get to fly out and have adventures Mm. and come back to this safe nest. And there is a lot of beauty. I guess I sort of referred to this last in the last episode. I see a lot of I do see nobility in self-annihilation sometimes, but what I don't think is okay is for it to be gendered Mm -hmm. because I think it's a beautiful thing for a parent, a mother or a father to make a sacrifice 
of, you know, a work meeting in order to go to their kid's baseball game or to take some time off in a certain way in order to care for a a sick loved one. I think that is a noble human endeavor. And I don't actually even begrudge washing dishes or doing laundry. I think it's an important part of the human experience for, um, for men and women to participate in. And it's not fair for the mama bird to always have to stay in the nest while everybody else gets to fly away. So I think um, that's, can I just add one point? Please. Yeah. uh, And I know you're going to discuss Virginia Woolf and you've read uh, To the Lighthouse. Remember Mrs. Ramsey? Of course, um, yes. And how her work is not seen except for by Lucy, who's an artist. And she at some point says, why is is it that Mrs. Ramsey is not considered the great artist who's orchestrating all this household mm. and, and putting, you know, even setting the table, who sits next to whom, uh, keeping the conversation flowing, making sure that her husband's ego is uh, boosted because he's always in some depressive state. He's an academic, right? And then he has mm-hmm. students to come <laughs> in and, and keeping them entertained and matchmaking because Mrs. Ramsey is always trying to pair people up and matchmaking and taking care of the kids and, and this whole thing that she's created creativity that is is coming out from her but is not being seen by anybody because obviously it's the man who is you know throwing some abstruse concepts is considered the genius while she who is a more practical running and functioning this household is not considered an artist is not con- this is not even considered an art not even considered work and I mm-hmm. and that's what I when I you know, initially in my comments I said we have to redefine what work means because even Keeping, you know, for example, you could have said to your husband, you know what, I'm giving up on this marriage, I'm giving up and I'm going to go pursue my own life because I want to do that. But you did, right? And and that took a lot of work from your on your part to to make sure that you have a healthy marriage, that you have beautiful children who have to, I mean, your kids are, I mean, they're, I remember seeing them last year, and they were just so brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I could see your upbringing, <laughs> you know, the effort that you put in. And it's not easy. It's not easy. And you know, uh, Amy, like I was thinking about Edison. <laughs> I wanted to bring him up because uh, when you think of Edison, what do you think? Like, what are the words that come to your mind when you think of Thomas Edison? Light bulb, persistence. <laughs> genius, right? Genius, uh-huh. male genius. Genius, and, yeah. And uh-huh. did you know that he actually failed as a parent? Like his kids, you know, mm. went to court cases against him. Three of his children died uh, without having any children of themselves, you know, of themselves. So um, I don't know. And the other three, there were like all these issues. But nobody talks about that, right? Nobody, because obviously, mm-hmm. um, you know, you could say that Thomas Edison failed as a parent, as a human being, because, uh, you know, his progeny sort of, uh, he failed to impart values and, and or failed to um, have good relationship with his, uh, with his family. But we never, we overlooked that. And we have like Thomas Edison monuments and Thomas Edison, this and that and institutions. And, you know, and we just read only about his work life. I mean, life, you know, with the light bulb and all of that, his invention life. But we never, you know, consider the part that he failed at right mm-hmm. and and that requires mm-hmm. a lot of work to maintain relationships to keep them to sustain them to make sure that your children um you know his children only one son actually went to go to went to college the rest didn't even study i mean can you imagine like the greatest inventor mm. could not even send his own children to i mean you know um yeah so so those are the things that we 
we sort of uh, look over, like we we think it's okay. And but uh, but for a woman, you know, for a parent who who puts in all that effort, it's just never acknowledged in our society. It's never acknowledged that your children are healthy, doing uh, wonderful at school, and and um, and and it it's not easy. And you know that. And I've seen. I I my mother used to sit with us and. She literally did all our homework <laughs> for the <laughs> writing our essay. I mean, it's a lot of work to do all those yeah. things for, you know, for kids and, and a lot of effort that is, you know, and it's only because of that, that the kids sort of see, you know, or want to work hard or want to, if, if your par- if the parents are not involved, then you don't know, like the families fall apart. And uh, so that work is not seen as work. And that's why I think our society needs to, that's why I feel like maybe, maybe the primitive, primitive, uh, cultures had a better understanding of, and, and you know, mm. uh, Bouvard will talk about harmony uh, in, mm-hmm. in the in the women's situation and character chapter. And I was thinking about it, like, yeah, this harmonious life that is sustainable with our, you know, planet is sustainable with the cycle of birth, the cycle of um, the weather cycle, or, or you know, it, it was more understood in in the primitive cultures than in the pre- post industrial world, where it just focuses work, 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 work till you die. But what about children and family and care and old age and who's going to do that? I mean, so so I guess they at that point maybe they assume that oh you'll have the woman doing it and it's just mm-hmm. a male is never involved. So it sort of actually hurts everyone. It hurts the father. It hurts. Um, the family life it hurts like you said you know your sister said that it's not uh good for the mental health of the people at home the children the mother i mean what are we going to do in the end just have robots taking care of our babies because we are busy <laughs> doing you know inessential things like <laughs> you know in corporate world like so 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 i feel like we need to reassess what is value to us and uh, or or you know cuz i remember and you know one reason Go back to your first question, you know, why you mentioned you had children at 22 and I had mine at 35 was that when I was working, our company did not. I mean, this is I work for a large corporation. Okay, I worked for Apple and um, and at that time they did not provide childcare. And Mm. you ask them, why don't you provide the women at Apple Group would ask them. And they would say, oh, you know, at Apple, we want to do everything perfectly. And this would require a lot of work so we just don't we cannot reach that perfection so that that was the answer which doesn't make any sense wow. i don't know maybe now they have they don't have um in-house childcare. i think they probably subsidize some i don't know if they do that now but anyways till i was there they didn't provide any childcare, and uh and they actually gave us a service uh in our health benefit that we could freeze our eggs mm, but they did not oh provide child care so, so I thought wow. that was really odd. And I remember some of my uh, male colleagues were like laughing at me. Oh, yeah, now you can freeze your eggs and you don't need to have like, you know, get married or have children till you're 40 because they let you freeze your eggs. But yep, no child care. So that's like, you know, when we talk about patriarchy, um, I saw a lot of my my co-workers either leaving after having giving birth to first or second baby or um, are just really struggling, like really struggling. And, um, and, and I think she, Bouvard talks about this as well in women's situation where she says that, or in the mother, I think in the mother chapter, she talks about that we just have not created a society where a woman can work 
and can be at home because at home you need us to have the slave who has to do everything like you say you know the other person was telling you that it has to be some kind of a self-sacrifice noble self-sacrifice and then we want the woman to be at work and be sacrificial there at work also like a worker you know in the marxist term who's continuously working like a machine we want both we can it's unsustainable that can't be Mm -hmm. so then we then we say okay the woman then just should be at home and the man should be the breadwinner and so that's the system that we've put in place and we're not creating something where the woman can um, be both productive at home and uh, and you know in the labor market so those are like some things it's really interesting that she has thought through so much (laughs) that's problems that we're still thinking about we still haven't solved for women and Bouvoir has really analyzed every aspect of um you know a woman's life especially now that we're in the married part yeah yeah well well again all of those comments are so insightful and I had so many thoughts I do I do want to make sure that I characterize my my struggles in my early marriage, I should throw in also that my husband, whenever I would have these um, meltdowns and say like, <laughs> I, this is so hard. He was wonderful about, um, well, the first thing he would always say is, do you want to work? Then get a job. Like he was super, oh, that sounded sarcastic and that's not how I meant it. He was very, very supportive. Like, would you like to work? We can arrange childcare. We can, uh, um, he was always, my partner. And so it was, um, it was a limit that I put on myself that I didn't feel comfortable going back to school or, or getting a job. He would have supported that at any moment. And he made that very clear all the way through. So it wasn't, it wasn't him telling me that my place was at home by any means Mm -hmm. at all. In fact, he was encouraging me more but just the way I had internalized the messages growing up, I just was like, no, that's not even an option. Of course I couldn't do that. And the other thing is just as you were talking, I thought it's it's actually really great that we started this episode again by talking about our different, the different worlds that you and I grew up in that we bring to this text, because I it's making me not take for granted um, and helping me kind of salvage the goodness that there is in my my faith community of how much we actually do value domestic work and do talk about it in fact there's a quote that that mormons grow up with um one of the former presidents of the church that said no success can compensate for failure in the home Mm. so when you talked about edison I thought, yeah, no success can compensate. I mean, in in terms of a person's human life, when they get to the end of their life and they're on their deathbed, usually people talk about their families, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's the thing that really does mean the most to people and make us make us happy and and leads to fulfillment. And I do think that our cult, my culture that I grew up in is really good at recognizing the nobility of domestic work and the essential that nature of family relationships. We do a really good job of that. I just think the problem is, again, with the the division of gender roles um, that says, yeah, that that, that's all you can do. Like I said, I guess to reach self-actualization, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs for men and for women, if you're going to reach, you know, your potential, 
as a human being, it involves lots of different aspects. And if you limit one entire gender to say like, you will only get to do this part because you are male and you only get to do this part because you're female, that's the problem Mm. for me. So I I absolutely agree with you and felt really validated. That was lovely for you to be so validating of my (laughs) life choices and and the home I've created. And, and it has been, I will say, and I tell my, I tell my children this all the time, if I had to pick only one or the other, there's no contest. I would have done it over and over again to just be their mother. Mm. If I never got to do my master's degree, if I never worked another day in my life outside the home, I would pick it every mm. single time to be their mother. Mm. But the the fallacy was that it wasn't a binary either or choice. And I grew up believing that it was. I, You are still a fantastic mother and you will be and you will be there for your your child as he grows up and you're also continuing your master's degree and you're also going to keep working it's not impossible to do both and that's the fallacy i think mm-hmm. is telling people that they can't develop their whole selves and that they're not capable of making those choices on their own i just think everybody should be able to think like what works for me and what works for my spouse mm-hmm. and what child care makes sense for us. Do we have parents living nearby? And in any case, so, so that we avoid the situation um, that you described where the woman is expected mm-hmm. to be a full-time mother mm-hmm. and a full-time domestic mm-hmm. um, servant yeah. and a full-time worker. Yeah. That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And it also doesn't work to say that the woman can't work at all anyway well, one, one interesting thing that I, I, I wanted to point out is you know with the whole nature of how work is changing well post-covid <laughs> when we are remote mm-hmm. or you know a lot of people probably um you know are now can work from uh, any place you know they don't have to come let's say to the bay area and so another thing is that you know also like in my father's generation you would stay at the same company for 25 mm-hmm. years you would have a career with the company and now that's not the case right people stay at the same place 2 years 3 years maybe you know if you're more conservative you'll stay 15 years but then that's sort of looked down upon <laughs> at the value yeah. people like to move and and change and even change careers is is becoming more the norm especially in technology where New technology comes up, new, you know, you have to just having a master's is not enough. You need to always keep updating your skills, right? So you have these nano, like Udacity has these nano degrees where you can, um, you know, take a few set of courses and, and get a certificate and then you move on to, you know, something new. And I think that's like, you know, we talk about the future of work. That's how it will be, I feel, more and more. And, and especially since we're all living longer, we're going to live like what till 90 <laughs> I mean we're all healthy yeah. right so we can't say that if okay if I take x amount of years off to to be with my children this should not discredit me from joining the workforce I think that's another aspect where sort of the patriarchy comes in like the mindset mm-hmm. is oh you you stayed at home with kids why you know like we need to make it easy for both men and women who choose to stay at home with their kids to come back and join through these other programs that they can, you know, um, get, update their skills and such so that we don't like keep women out or, you know, because generally it's always women who take time off if they opt out from the workforce, it's generally women. So I feel like that's another way uh, to think about how, why are, is it that employers are making it so, why is it so difficult for women to come back into the workforce? Why is it that they 
feel that, oh, if because I took 10 years to be with my kids, that was time wasted because now I cannot join. If that transition is made very smooth, if you know that, yes, you you have all these options, like update your skills or learn a new skill and join this new industry. And it's you can do it at home remotely. Don't have to like be stuck in traffic and 101 or whatever, 280, you know. And um, and you can do it at your own schedule because there's no nine to five anymore, right? We are working globally, like, you know, you're working with Asia, you're working with companies in Latin America. So there's like people are at their own. So if you set your own time so you can easily pick up and drop your kids, help them with homework, do work, update your skills. If you sort of create that environment, I think it will be so much easier for, for mothers and fathers to not feel that burden that, oh, you know, I had to opt out and had to make that, like, it won't even be a choice. It'd be just lifestyle. Like, this is our life. Like, yes, this is the time we uh, took time off to have kids. And maybe the government should also, um, in some ways, assist families who, who, you know, maybe this will happen when the birth rate goes low. And that's what's happening in Japan, because they have a rising elderly population and uh, and then they, I think the government gives you money if you have a child or something like there's some mm-hmm. assistance is given. So maybe that's what will happen um, as women, you know, refuse or, or delay their reproduction than to encourage it. There'll be some more incentives they put in place. And, and I think that's uh, what needs to be done because otherwise, like we discussed, it's just not sustainable. And, and we shouldn't have uh, make women feel the burden or make it feel so difficult to get, um, you know, maternity leave or, t- or opting out of work or even joining work back. It should be a very seamless thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where you, you patriarchy sort of hits you in the face when, you know, those life transitions. Because otherwise, you know, like you mentioned, you all go to college. Uh, life is really the same for men and women until these transition periods happen motherhood especially you know women take a wage cut it's called the motherhood cut or something when uh, mm-hmm. when they have a mm-hmm. child because they either start working part-time or they you know opt out um, and men generally get the fatherhood rise uh, because right. that's when either they can become more pushing or, or or the view of the father is that oh he's now a responsible while the view of the mother is oh now she'll be distracted Right? Why do we have right. these languages to describe motherhood? Why don't we say, oh, you're a mother, you can multitask and you can uh, manage so well. And you are, you know, like, instead of seeing it as a positive, and we see that with Bouvard too. I mean, the whole thing in the central element is that, I mean, of course, you know, this is like we said, it's written in the 40s. She's saying that women should not be just tied to reproduction. And she calls right. it the, the the burden of reproduction, right? The burden of motherhood and pregnancy um so we need to change that language and i think um you know discussing these works and discussing the experiences of women is really essential because otherwise we'll just keep you know bearing this burden (laughs) smiling away trying to do it all and you know and these leaning in and leaning out and doing all of that and it's just not not sustainable and it's not and we need to point out that this system in place is just not only working not for mothers, but also it's not feasible for fathers and families in general. And I think mm-hmm. only then, and, and especially we need fathers to come in and point this out too, because, and I can share just another anecdote. anecdote. Uh, my husband was working in a startup company. I mean, it was a mid-sized startup and uh, they had like, what, 
two, three week paternity, maternity leave, paternity leave. I don't know how much was maternity, but paternity was three weeks. And and then fathers rose up and said, no, I mean, I three weeks is not enough. I need to spend, you know, the equivalent that you that larger companies are giving for paternity or equivalent to maternity. So then they raised it to four months, the paternity leave. So it's only when the men spoke up is when the change happens. So, you know, we say that we need the men to be aligned. So we need to showcase to men that patriarchy negatively affects you as well, especially if you want to be uh, have a flourishing, healthy family life. So. Yeah, that's right. And that is a topic that I hope to bring up in several other episodes. And we have done in, in past episodes as well is how patriarchy is damaging for our boys and men and fathers, like you said, as well. So yeah, those are great points. I have a, the second point from the chapter on the married woman is a short one. And I'll just read a couple of quotes to illustrate it, but it's the the narrative of the controlling wife. Mm-hmm. And I hear this too when, when some of my um, dear friends who have a conservative view of gender roles talk about like, um, they'll use controlling or very um, dominant personality women as evidence that patriarchy doesn't exist or that we've moved past patriarchy because look at my my mother was she ruled the roost in my family and she would boss my dad around and they kind of used that um, that I, I won't say trope but that figure of the the controlling woman to illustrate how women are actually the ones who oppress men. So here's what Beauvoir has to say about that. She says um it is commonplace to say that in modern households and again modern she's writing this in the 1940s that in modern households especially in the United States the wife has reduced the husband to slavery. The fact is not new. And then she says that this narrative has been documented actually since ancient Greece, which I thought was interesting. Um, Here are two more quotes to illustrate what she's talking about. She says, males are in chains by their very sovereignty. It is because they alone earn money that the wife demands checks, because men alone practice a profession that the wife demands that they succeed, because they alone embody transcendence that the wife wants to steal it from them by taking over their projects and successes. And inversely, the tyranny wielded by the woman only manifests her dependence. She knows the success of the couple, its future, its happiness, and its justification resides in the hands of the other. In the end, he can do without her more easily than she him. If he leaves her, it is she whose life will be ruined." Mm. And then the other quote um, is, she says, the spouses together submit to the oppression of an institution they have not created. If it is said men oppress women, the husband reacts indignantly. He feels oppressed. He is. But in fact, it is the masculine code, the society developed by males and in their interest that has defined the feminine condition in a form that is now for both sexes a source of distress. Um, I found that incredibly insightful mm-hmm. and kind of encapsulates a lot of the ideas that we were just talking about. Um, so we'll wrap up there with, we'll wrap up that chapter um, on the married woman. And then the next chapter we'll go to is the chapter on the mother mm-hmm. next time on breaking down patriarchy. Mm-hmm.